Welcome to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach, Jordana Michelle. And if you're interested in finding your soulmate so you could be best friends who learn and grow together, share dreams together, have adventures together, and have amazing sex together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com because it's packed with free resources like my guide to quickly and easily eliminate rejection from your life, a how-to guide for finding your lesbian soulmate, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and since I'm such a great matchmaker and I might already be connected with the woman of your dreams, I also offer everyone a free survey you could fill out so I can keep you in mind as I meet extraordinary women just like you through the work that I'm doing in our community. All of that is free at womenwantingwomen.com. But before I go any further, I have a question. Have you ever been with someone and wondered if you're settling by staying with them? How do we know if we're with the right person or if we could do better if we take the risk and break up and try to meet someone else? The decision we make when we pick a life partner is possibly the most important decision we'll ever make. How much we succeed or fail in life can have a lot to do with whether we choose a partner who pushes us to be better and helps us create conditions for us to thrive, or whether we choose a partner who holds us back or distracts us or gets in the way of us being our best. So this is really important. And in this episode, I get to talk to Annie Lala, my favorite expert on creating epic partnerships. And I get to ask her all the questions I have about what single women can do to make sure we end up with the most dreamy partner imaginable on earth. Now, I have a few personal reasons why talking to Annie was extra special for me. First of all, she once saved my relationship when I was with Carolina. Caro and I were ultimately together for five really happy years, but we had one really, really bad fight three years into our relationship, and we were fully about to break up. But lucky for us, Annie Lala was there at a conference that we were attending, and as part of the conference, she gave a talk on partnerships and overcoming conflicts and all kinds of relevant things that Caro and I clearly needed to know in that moment. And... Annie Lala is so profoundly good at what she does that within just about 10 minutes of being on stage, Caro and I were holding hands, we were crying, we were fully back on the same team again. And we stayed together for two happy long years after that. So Annie's amazing. And the second reason why this interview is personally important to me is because Annie indirectly plays a huge role in my life. She's married to a guy named Eben Pagan, who is the teacher that I've studied from more than any other teacher ever. And as all my best friends know, if we end up in a long or deep enough conversation, it's kind of inevitable that you're eventually going to hear me say the words, well, Annie says, or well, Eben says, they're a big deal to me. So I was really excited to talk to Annie and have the opportunity to directly ask her all these questions that I've been wanting to talk to her about for a really long time. Annie Lala is known as the cartographer of love. For those of us who aren't vocabulary junkies, cartographer means map maker. And this title is so appropriate for Annie because as you'll hear, she's very poetic and graphic when she speaks and teaches. And her biggest gift is mapping out the mysteries of love so that other people can follow and understand and get to where they wanna go. 
So she truly is a cartographer of love. Annie Lala is professionally certified in coaching, NLP, and clinical hypnosis, and her work also incorporates her studies of evolutionary psychology, integral theory, spiral dynamics, intergenerational family systems, and therapeutic sexuality. Annie works with singles looking to find partners and couples wanting to resolve conflicts that erode their connection. And she helps people attract, create, and foster extraordinary connections that maximize freedom and minimize shame. You can find her and a ton of the valuable free resources she gives away at AnnieLala.com. And I recommend you do, but first, please enjoy my interview with the one and only Annie Lala. Annie, wow, thank you so much for being here and for joining me in this talk. Delighted. Yeah, I'm so excited to share everything of your genius or as much as I can get out with my community because um, you're really one of the people I look up to the most in this area and who I've learned more from than, than, than almost anyone I could think of other than, of course, your husband, but the two of you together. Wow. So this is a huge honor for me. Um, so yeah, so let's just jump right into it. There's so much I want to get, get from you, um, from my yeah. community, about attracting love, finding love, not settling. I know that that was one of your biggest areas. You now have, you know, the, the man, I'm not into men, but the man you've ended up with is probably, you know, my hero in life. So you did really well for yourself. <laughs> so for anyone who's worried about settling, or can you talk about that? Um, what, do you, what are your thoughts on settling? Yeah, well, I got really close to settling. I mean, literally, the man I dated right before my husband um, was amazing. He was a brilliant psychotherapist from Columbia University, top of his class, handsome, good-looking, fell in love with me, wanted to get married within months, wanted to build a practice together, have kids, move to Brooklyn. Like It was like handed to me on a platter, everything I supposedly could want. And I loved him, and I know he loved me, but I wasn't in love. And it wasn't because he wasn't good enough or I wasn't good enough. It's just sometimes there's a match. It's kind of like you have your your house key to your house. If you try to open my house, it doesn't open. It doesn't mean your key's not good enough or my lock's not good enough. It's just not a match. But I was 38 and the biological clock was ticking and I was just like, he's great. Why don't I just marry him? Everything's here. But I had a kind of meditative experience where I had an epiphany one day and I realized if I married him, I would be selling out. I would be settling for someone who I loved and who loved me but wasn't true love. And I'm the cartographer, the ambassador of true love. And it, it, it felt like I was going to, my soul would die if I compromised on this really important truth to me. And I came to this realization, we broke up, and um, I, I had a lot of reckoning with that. But I, and I wrote a whole chapter in a book about that almost settling moment. And uh, let me see how I could give you some heuristics if a woman's in that situation and she's not sure if she's settling, you know, and this applies to a man or a woman. Here's, here's the deal. If you have been with this person for over a year, like I think it takes a year of interviewing and research before you have enough data of monthly cycles, yearly cycles, how they are in different experiences. I think a year minimum before you decide who's your soulmate. After a year, if you still have a doubt, am I settling? You probably are. I know it sounds quite harsh, but um, most people after a year, their soul already recognizes or not recognizes that this is their life partner. And then it's just having the courage to actually um, have your actions match that truth. And a lot of people squint at that truth because they want to fit in in the world. They want to say, yeah, I found my partner. Or they want to have kids. or 
and, and to, to fit, uh, they, they want to tick a tick a box that they've completed some achievement rather than refusing to give up on the possibility of true love for themselves. You have to believe it's possible for yourself in order to not give up. Otherwise, you're like, well, it may never happen. This is pretty good. And so you settle. But there's a quality to settling. And, and I, the way you know you're not settling is you feel like I, my husband drives me fucking crazy. There are times where I wish I could take a pill that would make me stop loving him. Like, really. But I never think I'm settling. I'm angry as fuck. I want to, like, thrash about. I wish I could almost leave the relationship sometimes. But I never think I'm settling. Do you see the difference? It's a huge difference. Um, the, the example I give is if you've ever seen the Grand Canyon, if you ever stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon, which is like an epic hole in the ground, you, you never you never go, oh, oh this whole thing. Like, okay, I, now what's the big deal about? No one's ever seen the Grand Canyon and not been jaw-dropped in awe. That's the feeling when you're with your partner. Not all the time, but net. You're like, I'm in awe of this human. They drive me fucking crazy. I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm definitely not settling. Do you see the difference? I do. But what about for people who aren't with literally the coolest dude I can conceive of, right? Um, you know, and also what about, you know, so how do you, you know, so I really want to speak to that because I try and talk to clients about that, how to believe in love when it hasn't happened yet. And is there really like, how can I, because I try, I try and, oh, and make people believe that there is someone okay. for everyone. I want to hear your take on it. Yeah. So we're literally bootstrapping reality from our imagination and it's governed by our courage and our audacity and i'll go to an example that's not related to love like steve jobs and the iphone okay he had a vision or james cameron and avatar they both had a vision of something that they thought could be in the world a piece of technology or a movie <clears throat> there was no the technology to support the iphone or the movie avatar didn't even exist like they had steve jobs and james cameron had to go and have technology created just to create to, to manifest their vision Okay, so in terms of audacious dream, everybody's going to have a computer in their hand, Avatar the movie, which is the best movie ever made, possibly. They had to believe in something that they saw in their imagination more than any of the evidence in the current world allowed for them to believe. So it's a refusal to let the current status quo evidence govern what you believe. So if if you're looking around or looking at your past to see, is this feasible? When I extrapolate on the graph of my possibilities, is this likely? You will never get access to this belief. What I'm talking about right now is how to generate faith from nothing. And to me, this is the actual purpose of the human imagination. It's the highest use of imagination. It's to generate a belief in something. And the, the reason you believe in it is not because of its likelihood of being true. You believe in it because it's the most beautiful and audacious idea you can conceive of. And by virtue of its beauty and audacity, you confer belief to it. The ability to do that is the ability to have faith. And if you can't do it in love, I'm sure there's places in your life you can. Like in your work, if you're a writer, or if you make wooden cars, before you grab the block of wood, before you write on that page, you have an idea that this thing's going to exist, and then you pursue it with your skill and your craft, and then it happens. But it only happens because you did not let go of your connection, like an umbilical cord, to that vision, to that possibility, whether it's a piece of writing, a play, something you make, fixing a washing machine. It wasn't possible until you had the audacity to believe in it. And find places in your life where you're already good at that and notice how you can generate faith with other people can't. 
And then you have to segue that, copy paste it into this domain and recognize it's the same skill set. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. And I'm, I'm with you 100%. Now, the only objection, if I'm going to put myself into yeah, the shoes yeah. of my client and say what she might come back to me and say, she might say, Jordana, I hear you. But if I'm going to create a piece of writing, if I'm going to create a piece of a body of work, I can use my personal effort and go about to take the steps to execute those plans. If there's a certain technology that hasn't been created, I can go to the edge of what is created in that technology and speak to those experts and then move the ball forward. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know how to manifest a human that I've never met before, don't know where she is, don't know her number, don't know how to connect with her. It's a little bit, there's a little bit more magic yeah. in there. And can you speak yeah. to that? Yeah, absolutely. So the game is not to manifest a partner or call in your soulmate. That's not how I look at it. The game is to create your womanhood, your selfhood, as the, as the most extraordinary you can muster. So you're maximally aligned with your values and your daily behavior. You're maximally aligned with your purpose and your dharma, like you coaching rather than doing some desk job. Every place in your life where there's a gap between who you want to be and who you are, you get to fucking work on that gap, okay? So you're creating yourself into the most extraordinary woman that you would want to offer to that person were you to meet them. That's the work you, you get busy on. That th They will find you. If you get on that track and build, um, build yourself as the avatar or as the iPhone, like get to work on what you can control. Um, you are your own iPhone. I love it. Yeah, and you are your own avatar. Literally, you are your own avatar of God, the universe, woman. Um, if you want to marry or partner with the most extraordinary human, man or woman, that you've ever met, which is what you should want, okay? If you want that, then you have to, when you meet them, be able to offer who you are with maximal triumphant dignity and pride. Fallible as you are, broken and wounded, but fucking proud of who you've created yourself to be. You're an art piece. You are your own Mona Lisa. And you keep iterating. It's not about perfecting. It's about minimizing the infinite, unclosable gap between who you are and who you want to be. And so this is a path of self-development, building your own um, self-esteem, building your alignment to uh, your, your values and your dreams. When I meet a human, I look at their physicality, their emotionality, and their intellectuality, in, in the way their mind works. And I look for congruence across these three domains. And the more congruent they are, the more I would see them as actualized, um, developed, whatever you want to call the ascension of consciousness. Um, we'll think of the Dalai Lama as, you know, enlightened or actualized or someone we really admire. And it's because when he speaks and when he talks and when he thinks and his actions and behaviors, they align in such a way that you feel congruence. The reason you find that person in the restaurant or in that party shifty and untrustable, you don't trust them. It's because you're sniffing out, you're sniffing, you're smelling incongruence between their eye contact and their words or their body language and their uh, what they're claiming. There's an agenda that's not being represented. And so you, that incongruence is what has us trust or not trust another human. And so what I'm speaking about is having congruence across all levels of your being, which is a life's work. And so that's the technology I would have someone be practicing rather than trying to manifest someone else. Totally. So where would you get started, right? So, you know, the hypothetical, the, the women listening, where would be the first step you would take? I would ask them to write a shame list privately. They don't have to share it. They don't have to write it, show it to anybody. Write down the things that they're most ashamed of. And how do you find those things? The things that you want to have secrets. What on your computer? What in your bedroom? What in your closet do you not want people to see? What in your mind? What thoughts? What beliefs? 
are you most ashamed of? And you can find them because secrecy always hangs out where shame is. Uh, and I'm not talking about your bank card number. That's not about shame. It's the things, why do you want the windows closed when you're getting dressed? Ask yourself the questions of what you're ashamed of. Make a list. It should have at least 30 before it gets interesting. And you don't have to show this to anyone, but this is your um, access to the parts of you that are out of alignment. Your shame is the indicator of your nervous system of places where you are inconsistent with seeing yourself as a goddess, as an avatar of God, as a piece of divine universe happening once and for all and never again, which you are. Whether you have a child or not in your belly is the ability to create life, which is the most extraordinary magic trick growing on the universe. In you, if you can't see yourself as a, a phenomenon that is worthy of self appreciation and worship, and everybody suffers from not having that, then you need to get to work on your self-esteem. And I have a whole bunch of technologies on how you build your self-esteem. There's I, books on it. I love your technology for self-esteem and I'm not letting you off the call without getting into it. But I'm really curious because, you know, let's say we write a shameless like this, um, which I love the idea of. And definitely the things that I am most ashamed of about myself is what I work on all the time. But there are some things that run pretty deep. I mean, that, that could be a scare, a very frightening concept. Someone who might have heard that, I mean, I can see that being a very like, <gasps> you know, so um, what would we do with a shameless like this? Like, you know, really, because okay. some of this stuff is intense. Yeah. Um, so shame is an emotion that is born in relationship. We're not born with shame. We're, we're, I think we're born endogenously with conscience about um, like a deep internal like conscience that gets shaped by culture. But shame is something you, you feel when someone judges you. The first time a little kid, I don't know, touches their vagina and someone gives them a look. They were, it's, it's the same as their elbow until someone gave them a look or made a statement and have them feel shame, okay? Comes in from the outside. So it's born in the context of other in relationship. Shame is I will withdraw my love, attention, or resource when you do with say a certain thing. And so we stop doing that thing. It's a way, it's like a, a lasso that curves, curbs behavior. It's a way to control behavior. And that's how culture and parent to, parents and lineages use it to curb. So if it's born in relationship, shame can only be um, uh, re relieved in relationship. So every shame that you have until it's witnessed by another human often usually in a therapeutic dynamic with a coach or a therapist or a best friend, when you start to reveal something you're ashamed of, but you first have to reveal it to yourself before you can ever reveal it to anyone else because most of us hide our shames from ourselves. But once you can know, oh, I'm ashamed of this, and then you can express it to someone and have another human persist in their affection, their love, and their offering of contribution to you while after you've shared the shame, something in your nervous system changes and you go, oh, I'm still lovable. Because shame is built on pain of death. Like it's built in your system. It's a tribal, it's a tribal um, indicator. Like back in the tribal days, if you had 10 pieces of food and there was 10 people in the tribe and you ate two, one person would die, like literally. And so shame evolved to make sure you never trespass on the tribal rules so that the whole tribe could stay alive. So pain is built into the body on pain of life or death. You literally would get kicked out of the tribe and die in the desert if you didn't follow the rules. So every time we feel shame, we literally feel like we're going to die if that person knows this thing about me. When you share it with one person first and they you don't die and they don't not only don't stop they don't stop loving you, they love you more. 
it rewires the way you relate to the shame. And there's no way to get there except by expressing it and watching the other person still love you. And the more people you share the shame with over time, the less the shame has to abduct your consciousness or impact you. And so really sharing your secret shame with one of her and then maybe more is the path to transcending it and having it uh, desist from puppeting your life. Because basically shame puppets your life and curbs your self-expression and your full aliveness. And it's your full aliveness that is your signal to call your mate. So anything that curbs it, I use the metaphor of a bonsai tree. Every bonsai tree that you see in a Japanese shop is actually a real tree, a regular real tree that they find when it's young. And they bind it with wire to curb its growth to make a cute little bonsai. But it's actually a real oak tree. Shame is how our family and our lineage unconsciously often binds our full magnificent self-expression and produces our little bonsai version of our mate call. It's not fully expressed. It's not the sequoia tree that we really are. And so if you can track where those bindings were in installed in you from your parents or from your culture and work with a therapist, a coach, and self-development to unbind them and be freer in how you speak in person, on stage, where you do your art, your creativity, where you're shackled by shame and snip through those, that's your mating call. That's the work. Does that make sense? So much sense and so uh, beautifully spoken. I, um, I know there have been times when I, and the best thing about my ex-girlfriend Carolina, who's still my best friend and still the person I'll call when I discover something I'm ashamed of, I, I do this thing where I realize, oh no, I have to share this now. And I'll like, you know, either if she, when she was sleeping next to me, I'd shake her now, I'll give her a call and say, okay, I have something I'm ashamed of. And she listens. And actually what usually ends up happening is whatever it was that I was so ashamed of, she's like, you know, that's okay. And, and then there's like almost a partnership in making me feel better about this thing, even if yeah. it was something that I was so terrified a moment before to share. And it's not like I think of it and just call right away. Like I think about it, it tortures you. me. I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to say it. I don't want to say it. I don't want to say it. And that's when I know that I really have to. Um, and I'm so fortunate I have a safe space. Are you saying that this is something that's best with, um, for people who, I mean, best with a, with a friend, right? Or is it good with therapy? Like, what do you suggest? Well, every human is, has the, needs to take on responsibility for finding a place on the planet where they feel safe enough to share truth. Some people have it from their family. Some people have it from their sister, from their brother, their friends. Their, some people ha get, have coaches. Some people have therapists. Very often when I work with a client, what I'm, what I'm secretly doing, I'm a love coach. I'm a cartographer of love. I'm going to help you find your soulmate. But what I'm secretly doing is I'm taking over the reins from where their parents, who I know love them, no matter how they did as a parent, I know their parents love them the best they could. I'm taking the reins from their parent. And I'm going to walk into that client's heart and mind and life and send appreciation and love to who and however they are with all their shames and make them feel safe enough. Honestly, I fall in love with the client enough so that I can want to make them feel safe enough to share their shames so they can get witnessed and transformed and install in them a template in service of their parents' deepest desire, a template I want to install in that person, that woman's mind that they are lovable, that they are extraordinary, that they're capable of magnificence and create a new attachment, a temporary attachment figure for them to feel free enough to be expressed in the world. And then what I do is I teach them slowly how to create their inner attachment figure 
pieced together from the best parts of their mom, their dad, their me, their favorite teachers, their best friends. So they have an internal attachment figure. So Jordana would have an internal Jordana that's a grown grown up woman who, if you saw a girl crying on the street, you would know what to do with her. You would be able to soothe her. There is a version of Jordana that's that. And I would have you install that version so that when young, shameful Jordana is having an issue, the grown up one inside your psyche can hold and rock and soothe the scared, shameful, terrified little girl in there. And until you have that reference experience demonstrated by a parent or a coach or a therapist or a friend, when a person has shame or terror, they don't have any safe place in their brain to take refuge. So every human needs to have that. And if you don't have it yet, that's until you have a reference experience, you won't be able to create your own internal attachment figure which means you won't be able to self-soothe or regulate your own nervous system, which means when you fall in love with a romantic partner, you're going to unconsciously, as all romantic partners do, project your partner as attachment figure and treat them as the one who holds the key to make you feel safe, to make you calm, to help you feel better in an argument. Every couple that comes to me that's in conflict is on some level expecting their partner to make them feel safe. And while I think that's... uh, that totally makes sense to me and why you would want that. And I did that with my husband as well. I married the right man who basically taught me by his incapacity in some ways to make me feel safe, to go and learn how to generate a mother in my mind, my own mother of my young self, to soothe my own nervous system so that someday when I had a child, I would be able to do it for her. I'm covering a lot of ground here. No, I love it. It's genius. Um, But like getting back to practical steps that women can take right now, because we all have shame and, you know, and a lot of us do have people that we're safe with. I guess one first step is if you don't have friends who you're safe with in the world, start really trying to develop friendships where you can be safe. And, and if that's also hard, then also seeking professional help so where that can be where that can be done. Yeah, I mean, if people are struggling in a relationship and they eventually go see a coach or a therapist, that's what they're literally doing. They're going to get help with whatever patterns they're playing that they don't realize that are getting in the way of long-term lasting relationships. Maybe they can make a first date or a second date, but they can't make the relationship last. There's some pattern that's in the way of intimacy for them that was imprinted in their original dynamic with their parents, because that's where you learn what love is from how you related to your parents. And so we have an imprint and that imprint governs the ways in which we love really well and the ways in which we um, love ineffectively. And the best, strongest way to enter a relationship is two people who are very whole and have done as much of this work as possible. Yeah, the the more the two people are able to have internal attachment figures that can um, regulate their own nervous systems, then you have more full, complete adults in relationship, like two twin stars rotating rather than two popsicle sticks leaning on each other. Which also gets back to self-esteem because you do have, there's a lot of women who might say, well, if I'm incomplete right now, how could I even find that person? So what's I think really also relevant about what you said is that you, would, you, you weren't there yet. You were able to work to more of that place through your love with Eben. Uh, it's not as if anyone's too broken to oh, be no. able to be lovable either. Um, no. So this is not also to put you know, 10 miles or 100 miles yeah. between you and the love you want to find. It, it can be available and worked through even as you meet someone. Every person you meet that you have a relationship with, man or woman, is practice for all relationships. So every every woman you date, every man you date, is either the one or practice for the one. So you want to bring your A game. You know, when an Olympic uh, when an Olympic athlete goes and does their practice every morning, they don't bring a half-assed. Oh, it's just it's not the Olympics. I'll just bring my half-assed energy today. You bring your full A game 
so that when you're on the Olympics, you've practiced bringing your A game. So even if you're with someone that you don't think you're going to be with forever, you continually use them as the dojo and the gymnasium to practice being the best version of lover and human and present consciousness that you can. Um, you said something about seeing yourself as incomplete. The point of therapy and coaching is not to realize where you're incomplete, but to realize where your defense mechanisms have you believe you're incomplete. You're actually perfect and whole Internally, I think of Michelangelo's statue of David. He said when he saw the block of marble, he saw David inside the marble, and he just removed everything that wasn't David. That's what you're doing in relationship. You're removing all the defense mechanisms and the um, insecurities and the fears that got installed during childhood development that were covering up the magnificent piece of divinity that you are underneath. And your partner in relationships, every time they have a complaint or criticism or a need, if you could listen behind it to see that they're trying to carve away anything that is not your magnum opus masterpiece inside. They're carving away the excess marble that's not David. But if you identify as the block of marble, then you're going to feel they're cutting into your skin. But if you identify as being shaped by each partner into a more magnificent version of yourself that was buried underneath defense mechanisms, then they're revealing what was always there, which is your lovable, infinitely lovable, beautiful self. You're, you're such a poet, and and this is going to lead me into my next question I have for you, because one of my favorite, uh, I love Nathaniel Brandon's work, and I, I know you do too, because I recognize a lot of it in what you do, but you've actually taken his work to a whole other level, where you uh, talk about self-esteem and, and seeing yourself as the woman on uh, the screen. Like, Can you just go through that, because I don't know anyone else who speaks about it the way you do. Yeah, so one of the techniques my brain came up with, and I think everyone can use this technique, it's kind of like an internal NLP technique, is to imagine yourself on a movie screen at all times. Like you're walking down the beach by yourself, you're walking down the sidewalk, you're always on a movie screen. And in the audience is, I think of it in the audience as all my future selves and everyone I've ever loved and admired, okay? But you could just have all your future selves, okay? So at any moment in time, even when I'm alone, I want to be acting, behaving, speaking, thinking in such a way that all the people in the audience would be clapping for me. So when I'm in a situation where I'm upset with someone or there's some decision I have to make, I quickly run the visual of I'm on a movie screen, in the audience is everyone I admire and all my future selves. What would have them clap for me? And that gives me a very clear indication of how to move, how, what to say, how to act. Because I, I, if I play that heuristic, I can see very clearly if I do that, no one's clapping for me. The, you know, What makes me feel like the, the most beautiful, heroic, good inspiring version of myself. And I try to align myself with that, um, the, the character in the movie that I would most want to be. And I think if everybody ran that in their mind, how they behaved in life um, would be different. But in particular, when you're alone, you see, when you're alone, there are things that you're doing that we would be clapping for that girl in the movie. Like I, like I give an example, like if you're walking down the street and you see the shadow of a tree on the sidewalk. No one else is seeing that shadow. And in that moment, the shadow might delight you. Um, you might hear the laughter from a child in a school playground and you are pleased by it. That is very subtle and insignificant, but if you could be witness to that moment of your own poetry, and we all have moments of delight and poetry as we move through our day that no one else sees. You could be in a shop and you feel a cashmere sweater and you like, mm, love the feeling. 
you feel a breeze on the back of your neck as you're walking out of a store and it feels cooling on your neck. And that moment of delight, if you could be witness to it and appreciate life for that moment, everyone in the audience would be clapping for you because we love people who love shadows and children's laughter and are delighted by breezes on their neck. Like we just love that character. So becoming easily delighted is the first step for developing self-esteem. Just noticing where you already have delight. You don't have to go find more. Just noticing where you already have them. The feeling after you brush your teeth. I love that feeling. The feeling of my toes on the bath mat as soon as I get out of a shower. The first drops of hot water on my body. I love that. The smell of your shampoo. There are a million delights in your day that are not getting cataloged and tracked. Just start tracking them. That's the first layer. The next ninja move after you've become proficient at tracking moments of delight is to install a meta, a meta layer that watches you having the delight and clapping for it. So when, I, when I'm in the shower and I smell the mango shampoo and I like it, I'm appreciating the delight of the shampoo smell. And I'm also delighting in the fact that some chick in the shower is enjoying her shampoo smell. And I like her for that. So I have two layers of delight. The second order layer produces, it almost babysits the first one so that you can take your consciousness out and it'll run as an auto program for the rest of your life. It's self-generated self-esteem sustenance technology that you don't have to consciously manage. And so it's the two layers that actually makes it generative and perpetuates it as a habit in your psyche. So that's my hack on self-esteem. I absolutely love it. But can we just tie back a little bit more as to why that relates to self-esteem and like what self-esteem is and why you're being delighted and being, you know, a, that, why that relates yeah. to self-esteem in the first place? So self-esteem is your, um, Brandon talks about self-esteem is your um, belief in your ability to cope with what the future brings, not just cope, but thrive. And your, it has two pieces, your, your belief in your future self's ability to cope and to be successful. And the other part of self-esteem is you believing you deserve to be happy. So those two pieces are required to have strong self-esteem. The reason why I find the delight technology useful is because it forces you to observe in your life where the moments of your life that you are, you like how you're doing life. You're falling in love with yourself and your life with this practice. And when you fall in love with yourself in your life, it gives you the audacity to believe that the next moment will be beautiful, fallen, lovable, happy, delightful, interesting. Our human minds are um, programmed to look for what's wrong. When we scan a situation, we look for what's wrong because that's more dangerous for us. We don't walk through the world going, this sidewalk is perfect. This grass is lovely. We look for the thing that's scary or that could be wrong, the imperfection, because that's what evolution rewarded us for. That's what survival. Because otherwise we would have died. We would have died, right? Catch, you don't notice the flower, you notice the lion lurking in the bushes. So because we have that default program, we have to um, do affirmative action for the other program, which is to consciously notice what is beautiful, what is safe, what is wonderful. And unless you practice that intentionally, the default will be to look across your life and see what sucks, which is what we all do great. We're all good at that. But you have to build a muscle to look at what's – this is the gratitude practice. Other people call it gratitude practice. I like calling it delight practice, but you can do it anyhow you like. It's basically forcing yourself to draw attention to moments of life that are good rather than bad. And if you start doing it, you'll actually string them together, those moments, and you can make like a necklace, a metaphorical necklace that you wear of this, this is how I do life with all these moments of delight or gratitude or beauty or appreciation. And the person who wears that necklace every day moves through life with a kind of feminine prowess and stride that is 
attractive to others. But you can't fake it. You can fake your confidence stride, but as soon as someone gets to know you and talks to you, they're going to track whether you like yourself and your life. And if you haven't done the work to create yourself and your life in such a way that you like it and you're proud of it, why would they want to take it on if you're not even proud of it yourself? Totally. And I love how you put it on a movie screen because the truth is that we are, are, are we have a higher consciousness that is watching everything we do, even if we're a little bit asleep at the wheel all the time. There's always a part of us that's watching everything. And so for you creating this image of us in a movie theater, seeing ourselves in an audience of all our future selves and the people we respect, the truth is because when we do go in, we talked about the shame list, right? When we do think about our shame, it's almost as if we're up on that movie screen and all of, and we are our future selves looking back on that moment. And we're thinking about how all the people we respect most would be, judge, most would be judging us. Um, yeah. So, and, and usually that's a horror movie that we're watching in that moment. But, you know, the idea of just everyone clapping, it's such a sweet, beautiful metaphor, and I love it. Um, and, yeah, with, with Brandon, he talks about, you know, um, self-esteem and the reputation we have with ourselves, and your, your idea of just, you know, delighting in pleasure and seeing ourselves as someone who really brings more delight this, to this world as opposed to criticism. Because we're attracted to people who show up where we think everything is delightful. So if you invite someone to a party and they come in and say, I love your apartment, I love your food, I love your clothes I love everything about you as opposed to yeah this is okay or I didn't like the food you know uh, authentically they yeah. actually you can feel they're congruent they actually are delighted by those things totally because yeah. it yeah. and it feels wonderful to be around someone like that um you have to build a PR agency in your mind for your life and yourself your own beauty and to build that PR agency you have to have good commercial marketing data so you have to market each moment of consciousness to yourself in such a way that you want to click on the button and buy more. I love it. And it's such a beautiful way of describing also the feminine power of delighting in pleasure, right? Because it's, it's more of like, you know, there's, um, like you talked about confidence being that masculine, like go in and get it, which we all have inside of us. I'm not really talking about male or female, just these energies of the world, but that whimsical delighting in pleasure. And it is, it's not really taught. We're in school. We are taught more of the masculine arts of, um, of going after goals and getting things done and it's beautiful and we're so lucky to have been taught that but you know how nice would it be if they just said okay little boys and girls let's let's practice desire let's practice delight yeah well they don't even need to teach it kids are born with that on full tilt you just have to not carve it away when, when your child is in pleasure and delight at the sand at the waves at a flower which they all are you just have to notice as a parent um and this is another issue that i we can get into but most parents have a secret unconscious envy at the raw, magnificent delight that their child has with reality that they've lost. And it's an unconscious envy. And so what happens is they, they say, oh, stop looking at that or settle down or stop jumping around ostensibly because they're trying to have their kids behave, but they're actually reacting to curb and shame and curtail the already existing delight and pleasure that the child comes with because it produces a character foil for their inability to do it. And it's uncomfortable for the other person. And so often we, we interfere with other people's delight ostensibly because we're trying to be realistic or we're trying to teach them or try to grow them up. But it's actually a discomfort with the fact that that person has more aliveness than we do and we're envious. So tracking that as a woman, envy and jealousy is a really important place to track, especially if, um, if you're in love with a woman. I think most women are in uh, playing levels of comp. All humans are competing with each other. Mothers and kids, lovers and partners, teachers and students, 
every human has this chimpanzee wiring of satisfying. And if you're not aware as a parent or even as a lover of the competition game, it's going to take you out when you're not noticing. Jealousy, envy, and shame always dress up in the masquerade of aggression. So if your partner is acting aggressive or angry towards you, ask internally, could they be feeling envy, jealousy, or shame? They won't know it. That you know, If your girlfriend starts talking to a waitress and you feel jealous, very infrequently does a woman go, oh, honey, on the way home in the car. You know, when you were talking to that waitress, I felt envious and jealous and insecure, and I could kind of bloated on my period right now. Could you remind me that you're in love with me and you think I'm sexy? Because, sorry, I felt so insecure. No one says that. They say, what the fuck? Why were you talking to that waitress like that? Why didn't you go have, why didn't you fuck her? Why don't you be with her? Aggression, anger, hiding, covering over, envy or jealousy. That's how it shows up in humans. You, so You talk about that a lot. You call it packaging up the, uh, the, the original bad feeling in another form where, you know, maybe you, maybe you won't even say, why were you looking at the waitress? Maybe you say, why didn't you blah, blah, blah. And really yes. something totally different yes. when really you're just pissed that, that yeah. she or he or whoever was talking to the hot waitress. Yeah. It's smuggled, smuggled aggression. Um, so it's, it's a constant practice to look at in, when you're feeling angry or aggressive, could there be shame, envy, or jealousy buried underneath? And that's your personal inquiry. And the more you look, the more you'll find it. Or just desire for love, which I love when you talk about too. Just sometimes if you're picking a fight with your partner, maybe you'd be better off just saying, hey, I need a cuddle right now. <laughs> I need attention. Most fights are very intimate. They're very intimate. They're not just like two boys wrestling. It kind of looks like they're hugging. There's a way in which you get emotional or physical contact from a fight that if you don't know how to ask for it because you have, um, I mean, asking for a hug or a kiss or love feels like a deferential move. It puts the other person in a higher status power position and you risk having your heart broken. But that willingness- Because they could to, say no. Exactly. And then it's a put down. And then you are heartbroken. So we do it in all these other clandestino ways instead of having the courage to tr track what you need, which is usually just ten attention and love or understanding and then asking directly for that, which I highly doubt any partner would not offer if it was asked for directly, but often we smuggle the request in some other pantomime. I mean, I definitely had prior girlfriends that if I reached, I, what I loved most about uh, Carolina was I, one of the things about her that I always told her that I loved so much was whenever I reached for her hand, she'd always give it to me. There was never a time when she, she's so wonderful like that. Um, but there are and, some partners that are mean and, and would use that as a status play. Yeah. If, if someone reaches for your hand, a friend or a partner in the middle of a fight or after a drama, that moment when they reach for your hand, I would love for you to see that as the highest moment of their personal heroism. It's the moment where their heart is most at risk of heartbreak. That hand moving across that chasm of three inches to touch your finger, it's an Everest move. It's climbing Everest for them. And to reject that is literally to be on the top of Everest and someone just got to the top and they're about to be triumphant and say, I made it, and you push them off the edge. That's If you could see that that's what we're doing, we wouldn't reject the 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 request for love it's a it's a with it's a punishment or withholding of love in order to, to regain power status but it doesn't produce better relationship it just produces being right or being in power and we have to learn that at the end of the day even if we're in power or right if we're alone we've we've lost the game that's totally true but sometimes we're you know i i in the height of my anger i'm not saying i would deny her hand because i wouldn't do that but i do 
we all get mean, right? When we're um, totally triggered and in, in the height of that. So what are some suggestions you have for that? When yeah. Triggered I, and angry. My favorite one I learned from my husband is in the height of his anger, he started to say, um, I'm angry. I'm fucking pissed. He, and we calibrate. So if I say he says he's angry, he'll say eight out of 10 angry, nine out of 10 angry. I'll say, I always know how angry because we've learned to not just say we're angry, but to calibrate it. One, two, three, four, five, six. So he could be like, I'm nine out of 10 angry. I'm fucking frustrated. I want to leave. But he'll say, but I love you more than I'm angry. And he always throws that in there. Sometimes he says it. Sometimes he shows it. Um, and he, it's happened enough times now that even if he forgets it, I already know it. <laughs> like I say it to myself for him. I know he loves me more than he's angry. But you have to you have to have the evidence a few times before you can generate it for yourself on behalf of them. But the fact is, it's true. In the middle of your biggest rage with your partner, if they were to suddenly in that moment cough up blood and have a heart attack, you would drop your bitch about whatever you were angry with, and you would call the hospital and you would run to the emergency room if you got the call that they were in a car accident. No matter what grudge you were holding, it would drop in that moment. So that's what tells me that the love is more than the anger in any given moment, no matter how they're acting. But when we were kids, our parents often showed anger more than their love because they, they didn't have a, anyone demonstrating that to them. And so we think deludedly, wrongly, that our parents can get more angry than they love us. And since we project that on our partner, what we're looking for, we can handle any amount of grumble and anger from our partner if we know they love us more than they're angry. If your partner says to you, I feel like I want to break up. I feel like it's over, but I want you to know I love you more than I'm angry. And we're going to get through this, but I have no clue how right now. You, you have all day long for carrying that and moving through it. It's, it's threatening the, the truth of the love. It's basically a lie. You're lying by saying anything energetically other than I love you more than I'm angry. It's a lie. So just stop lying. Just say the truth. Be the truth. And what's crazy about that, when you really put it that way, is even my exes who, you know, from years ago, I really it was the wrong relationship we'd broken up. That's still the truth is, no matter how angry I was, if anything went wrong, of course, and if I heard anything happen to them, I'd still be horrified to hear it. It's always true, even when you break up. So breakup's not even a, a risk to it. You can always hold that truth. Yeah, it's an amazing reframe right there. You said something really interesting. So the when I first heard you speak, I had already been a huge fan of Eben's for many years. I had already probably spent a thousand hours watching his work, but I hadn't really met you yet or seen what you do yet or learned how after meeting you that I invested in uh, find you know find Mr. Item, get him to marry you, intimacy intensive, love the final chapter. I've I've explored your work after first meeting you. So this is really my first encounter with you. And I remember you saying something that was pretty extraordinary because at the time, Caroline and I were going through something really hard and we thought it was over. And, and this was one of the things that the, hearing this sentence changed the whole trajectory of our relationship. You said to us, or you said to the audience, a relationship that hasn't been to the brink of annihilation and back is one that I don't fully trust. Yeah. And I, I, I found that to be so fascinating and, and really true. Um, but I really want to hear why and, and get into that. Because I think people think if they're fighting and if things are bad, that actually is a bad sign for the relationship. Yeah. Well, think of the first time you encountered conflict as a child. It would have been between your parents or your parents and you, or it was some scary thing that you didn't know how to handle. Okay? And so when a child sees that scary thing that they don't know how to handle, it feels like the end of the world. It feels like, well, maybe mom doesn't love me or mom and dad are going to leave me or like, it's very scary. And so you get anchored that conflict, bad, 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 end of the world. Conflict equals bad, 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 end of the world, breakup, abandonment, something like that. We get conflated. And so we take that into our relationships. 
Um, if, however, we had parents, which I hope Evan and I are doing our best at, who have conflict in front of the child, they have their little rah, 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 I love you more than I'm angry, we're going to work this through, but rah, 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 and they get through to the end of the conflict and then they're hugging, what the child learns is conflict is normal, conflict happens, just like going to the bathroom and spilling your milk, and it gets cleaned up and you move on with your day. And every time you have a... a an issue with your best friend in school or with a colleague in, in, when, in your first job, you learn conflict is resolvable and the love will win in the end. And there's always a way through. And so you're not as terrified and afraid of conflict. So this is where it's really important as parents to imprint this. But let me get back to um, the annihilation quote. If, if you were an addict, um, heroin addict or alcoholic, and someone said, I'm going to help you, I'm going to help you transcend this issue. And then you ask them, well, have you ever taken heroin or alcohol or had an addiction and they're like no 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 but i can help you how, how would you trust that they have the tools to help you on that edge where you're in the most crazy acting out moment where you all you can think about is that needle or that drink if they haven't mapped that space of what to do in the moment of terror where all the only way out for you is the drink if they haven't mapped a bridge across a different way to handle that than reaching for the drink how can they help you and so a couple that has gone to the edge of annihilation has mapped how to get back literally from the moment of almost death of a relationship to resurrection. That relationship, you can fucking throw anything at it that they can go through heartbreak, the loss of a child, uh, disease, illness. Like you've, you've taken the relationship to the battlefield. Stress tested it. Test, exactly. You've stress tested it. And it's not that you have to go to annihilation. It's just... If you have, you've mapped some shit that, uh, that couples tend not to map, and you can trust that the relationship's self-esteem as an organism, our us, can fucking make it. We are going to make it, and it builds self-esteem. Discomfort and putting yourself in new situations always builds self-esteem. Every time you try something new and succeed, you build self-esteem. So when you get through a conflict, it's not, oh, why did we have to get through that? We almost died. We'd never do that again. It's look how we did. Look who we are. We're bad. We're badass. Yeah, and and the, learning the that system. from you as at literally the moment that she and I were about to just end things because things were really hard. It was really that metaphor that not only brought us to back back together, but now enabled us to now that we left our relationship, we left as best friends, as sisters for life. There's almost no one on earth I trust more, and it was. It, I think it really. I think that was one of the metaphors that sparked it off, and because of learning that and realizing, yeah, now as a best friend even it doesn't because you know not every relationship is the right one and as far as a life partnership but that doesn't mean that the love isn't there you never stop you never stop loving someone once you start ever yeah. so don't kid yourself um you might not want to be romantic partners for life with them but i haven't stopped loving anyone in my past romantic partners i love them all i know they all love me i expect nothing less between evan and his romantic partners and there's many times when he's been on the phone with an ex-girlfriend that I just want him to channel love to her because she built in him skills that I get to benefit from. And when when, I, when, I, when you trust your partner's love for you, you don't have that worry that they're going to go get waylaid by an ex. You have a deep respect for how that ex built in your partner traits and characteristics that you get to enjoy and that you appreciate. Yeah, and when, when there are more of them around, then there's more allies because when you have loved someone on that level, um, that's your sister soldier, if, it, if you can mm -hmm. end it that way. You know, if you can all be mature enough and, and let it be that, um, then that can be actually a stronger kind of friendship than any other that's ever been. So that's, yeah. that's really beautiful. Yeah.
Anything important to like the girl-girl dynamic that I could weigh in on? Yeah, I am curious on what you think of, of women friendships or women relating to each other. Well, um, um, most people are heterosexual in the numbers game, right? And so when women and men are interacting in space, there's a, the traditional game is women are signaling, their mates signaling, and male, men are mates signaling, and they signal in different ways to form pair, pair bonds, just like animals in the wild do this. It's called mate signaling. If the women are trained from a young age, which most of us are, to see other women unconscious, we either get trained from our mother or by culture, that other women are competition to male attention, then what it builds in women is an unconscious level of jealousy, envy that you have to be conscious of if you want to transcend. I think on some level, every woman walks into a room and scopes out the space and, and decides where she is in the, in the hierarchy. I agree with you. And it gets so interesting when we're doing that and then we're dating that same group that we're competing in. And this is something I've really been trying to map out. Um, and I find it fascinating. I actually found in my own experience, and maybe just because sometimes I have a little bit, I have a, a very big energy about me. Um, and so I found that there are women that I've approached in the past that I was actually trying to flirt with or trying to hit on. And maybe I almost sparked a feeling of competition in her. And, and instead of being open to my flirtation, maybe in some way she saw threat, me as yeah. more of a threat or something, which was not what I intended. And I find this really yeah. interesting. It, you have to just get super conscious of the possibility of being misunderstood as a threat and then take, take into account that when you make the approach. So if you're a big, burly, tall, seven-foot guy, you have learned by the time you're 25 that when you approach other men, you feel gigantic and have an intimidating energy just because of your size. So most big, burly men that I've met have learned to become energetically cuddly teddy bear energy. They don't they don't trundle over like Arnold Schwarzenegger. They, I, the ones that I have gotten to know, I've seen this adjustment they've made to like, do affirmative action for the misunderstanding that they're really threatening. So their energy is super soft to accommodate and counteract that initial assumption. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, and I've also learned to ground my energy and meditate. And, and something that I've really worked on is like taking my energy down a bunch of notches, lower the intensity and, and just be less like that. What I also find is interesting though, because we're all in the same uh, side of the, of the um, evolutionary competition game, not because we all really are competing with each other, but just because evolutionarily we are chimpanzees and females compete with females, males compete with males. And that's just how we are mm -hmm. physically wired. What I, um, what I think is interesting when we're, um, the, the status differences between women, you know, so if, I if, if a woman texts someone and then she doesn't text her back, there's also this status competition thing wound up in it that I, I, I'm trying to figure out. Like, Karen, let me give you something about? on the status thing because we can't change yeah. the status vine. It's in the blood. It's in the, so co-opt the game for a new purpose. So the status I play now the traditional status is who's the hottest girl, who's the most coveted mate potential, smartest girl. You can play that status game, but I want to rename status. So now my status is how amazing can I make the woman feel? So so who's the most, who can bow the most to your beauty? And it's not self-deprecating. It's like, I'm a goddess. So I walk into the room, hello, I'm a goddess. But this goddess is going to bow to your goddess until you realize that we're on par. It's an energetic... Right, like Mama Gina, yeah. um, Mama Gina, well bragged, you know, kind of getting into we're all sisters and really witnessing and, and, and up leveling other women. 
in, in a mama Gina exactly. kind of way. But you can't up-level someone else until you hold enough goddesshood that you're not feeling scared of hers. So you have to develop, you have to go, I'm a sister goddess. You have to get that congruence enough in your bones. And then, then we can do co-sister goddess. But if I don't have my own goddesshood developed with the self-esteem practice, gratitude practice, see yourself on the movie screen, goddessing, if you don't develop that enough, then any other woman's goddess can feel like they're pushing on your shoulders. So, Or you're just needily, annoyingly putting them up on a pedestal while you hold yourself down, which is, which is more annoying than it is hot. Because they have to host you and bring you back up to goddess just to talk to you. Right. You're not doing them any favors. Where if someone who already stands in her own confidence and amazingness and says, you want to know what? You are a goddess, my friend. That's actually a way better compliment than, well, I'm nothing, but you're really cool. Um, yeah, exactly. I love that. I exactly. think that's genius. And I think the envy in this, the, between women starts with the mother-daughter dynamic. This is where I think it starts. And the more a woman as a mother can delight in her daughter's aliveness, beauty, youth, and breathe through and manage and acknowledge, manage, not suppress, her necessarily emergent envy, the more a mother can be conscious of that process. So I'm constantly watching my envy as my daughter. Her per perfect smooth skin, the, how delight, how she never runs out of joy and energy. I feel the, oh, she's more y yummy than me. I can feel it. Women, there's a taboo in our culture to even notice that part. We're like, oh, I don't feel envy. I'm a good mom. No, every mom feels envy. You have to, you have to transcend means to include and go beyond. You can't transcend it if you don't include it. So I have to, you have to watch for your envy, go, hello, inner chimp. I know you're there. You're part of my lineage. I honor you. And I'm going to breathe through and be more than my chimp. I'm going to appreciate consciously my child's aliveness rather than feel infringed by it. And every other woman around you's aliveness, um, starting from a sense of deep confidence and really allowing her to be the goddess that she is, everyone around you. So the new, the new status game is up-leveling other women, you're saying. Uh, and and every human. So the highest status person in the room is to me, is the one around whom everyone falls more in love with themselves. I love that. And another thing I actually learned from Evan is, um, you know, it, it, when I think about increasing status is also about how much value you can create for the people around you. You know, how, yeah. how much you can help people around you, which is uh, something I take with me from him all the time. Yeah, yeah. So high status is um, how, how the influence you have on the other person that's positive rather than how much attention you can get from them or narcissistic supply or appreciation. Um, um, one of the definitions of status that I heard from a friend that I really like is the person who, the, the person who has to see their blind spots the least is, is the highest status person in the room. Oh, interesting. So most high status people are, no one's willing to show them their blind spots and they're unwilling to see them, right? Like is Trump gonna go interview his, um, his counsel for where am I not seeing something guys like I want to I want you to show me where I'm naive and myopic the high status people don't do that but I have fetishized that as a status symbol so when my friends ask me my love language I'm like my love language is for someone to show me a blind spot with love and compassion and a commitment for me seeing it and knowing that I want to see it that's how I feel love I don't want you to praise me compliment me this is what I actually need and so the more you build that in I think we can if, if the highest status person was the person who's most willing to see their blind spots, our culture and our species would be fundamentally different. The leadership of our world, what would it be like if that was what, how you got to be high status? Oh, interesting. Um, so yeah, so I want to ask you about your perspective on women and just, you know, women's desires, women's needs, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things I say to my clients a lot 
and they're most of them are women, is that when a woman honestly accesses her truest needs and desires, they're usually things that upgrade her family, her community, and the world at large. They, she doesn't need to do a second guess of like, well, this is what I need. Is it good for everyone else? Um, they, they've done research and study with investment. When they give money to the women in communities in India and Africa, the whole communities get better. Like every system, the water system, the education system, everything gets upgraded when you invest in women and they use their money to um, express their needs and desires getting met. When they give the money to the men, you get these rogue success opportunities, but the community doesn't get upgraded. There's something about the way a woman relates. When women have a desire or a need, it's usually on behalf of the species. It's it's not just her single individual agentic self. That Sometimes she has needs, like she wants a, a new car or a new piece of clothing or a particular outcome. But if you give women a chunk of resource, it always upgrades the community she's a part of. And so I I mean, traditionally, when we talk about masculine and feminine energies, um, and again, every human has those inside of them, and traditionally, the the feminine is, I think of it as like wave-particle duality instead of masculine-feminine. I like to take the gender out. So just like light is considered a wave and a particle, there's photons, and there's the wave, electromagnetic quality of light. Um, women are more like the wave. It's, it's, the, it's the field. It's the aura, it's the energy of a space. And the particle is when the wave collapses from infinite potential into one place and one moment in time, one particle. And so I see masculine feminine as wave particle duality, um, or we call it in our relationship stuff, agentic communal. So the agentic pole is the part of all humans that stands for the I. The communal pole is the part inside all humans and in all couples that stands for the us. Another metaphor might be thinking of the ocean. When you think of an ocean, you know there's waves on the ocean. You can think of the ocean as a whole. Each one of us is a wave on the ocean. We're all part of the ocean. So you could say, I am an ocean. But there's moments in your life where you need to wave. You need to be your wave-like self. Is that making sense? Yeah, like a droplet of water, like coming off, like it just sprays up and then it's an individual, but it falls back into the ocean that it's a part of. Or if it's a wave, it never separates, I guess. It never separates, but at any moment in time, the, tr the, the trick, the art of being a human is to know when to identify yourself as wave self or ocean self. And we call the feminine or the communal the ocean self, and we call the masculine or the agentic the wave self. And you need to know when to be either. There's moments in time where you're struggling through a situation, you have a disease or a, 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 um, an issue in your life, and you need to be able to lean back into your friends, into your resources, into your support, and be part of the ocean, feel it supporting you. And there's times, like when you're applying to Harvard or you need to get a job, where you need to do your wave. You need to be your individuated, this is what I can do, I can achieve self. All of us have both. And the trick is to be integrated across both of these polarities. Totally. And so in terms of what women themselves desire, what you're saying is that a lot of times studies have shown that if a man, if, if, if on average, if you give men a group of resources, it might go towards one endeavor that's going to help one small group that they banded together and that's going to help that particular group. Whereas if a group of women are given the resources. Yeah, I, 
I, I guess what I'm trying to say is when a woman gets in touch with her deepest desires, they're always sacred and they're in service of life. If she related to her deepest needs as the sacred poetry of the universe expressing its next move in the dance of reality, if she treated her needs and desires as that, she would speak them as if they were sacred prose and excavate them like they were the holy grail instead of have shame, um, feeling of undeservedness or insecurity about whether they're valuable or worthy of being fulfilled. A woman's needs fulfilled upgrades reality. That's, so That's what I would love. That's beautiful. And what do you think women want in relationship? If, you, if for, for anyone chasing women and if you were speaking on behalf of women, even if you're speaking towards women to get them, what do you think? I mean, every woman is a creatrix. And I don't know where women hold their locus of identity, but I would encourage women to hold their locus of identity around their creative genius. And the way they um, creatively interact with reality, whether it's in the form of art or their particular profession. Um, th that's what we are. We're, um, we're visionaries, okay? I think of the female or the wave or the communal part of an, a system as the visionary clairvoyant part. So in a car, it would be the steering wheel. In, um, in a boat, it would be the the rudder, and the masculine part of a system is the engine. It's the one that makes it go. If you, A car can go, it has an engine, but if it doesn't have a direction or a vision, it doesn't go anywhere. Every one of us has a visionary part and a make-it-happen problem-solver engineering make-it-happen part. The make-it-happen engineering part of a system should always be in service of the vision. So when a man and a woman get together, or even two women get together, it, in both of them have a visionary part. And that visionary part is the one that they hold as the sacred um, direction. And then the part of them that's engineering problem solving to get it done, that's in service of making sure the vision manifests. So whether it's a man supporting a woman's vision, I mean, literally my husband asks me regularly, how should our life look? Where should we live? What kind of environment should it be? He's trying to get a vision and then he's gonna go make it happen. And it's not that he doesn't have his own vision, but he wants our visions, our two feminine poles, our two creative geniuses to tessellate and intermingle and produce an emergent vision that is the best of both of our creative imaginations. And then he's better at making things happen than I am, but I can make things happen too. But we put our um, engineering masculine know-how parts together in service of those visions. But if you don't have them in order, if you have the feminine part of a system trying to make shit happen instead of doing what it's best at, which is visioning, you have the wrong skills applied to the wrong part of the, the process. I think you don't fall in love with another person. You fall in love with their vision for themselves, for the world. I mean, that's, I definitely fall in love with Evan's vision. Uh, yeah, he was speaking to a group at Burning Man and he was painting his vision. That's what I fell for. And then I fell for the vision and then there was this guy attached to the vision that I was like, okay, well, he looks good. But this is why when you're trying to call in your mate, um, when you're trying to attract that possibility, you want to get your vision. You want to be talking, speaking, living, being your vision. And then as you move through the world, he or she will see that vision, fall in love with that vision, and want to become a trampoline for it and a sanctuary. Your partner should be a trampoline for your highest vision and a sanctuary for your deepest fears. And that hybrid combo is what produces um, 
the utility of the relationship. Otherwise, why be in one? Why would I be in a relationship unless my partner was the wind beneath my wings towards my highest dream? And that's one of the ways you can check if you're not sure who you're with the right person or you're settling. It's the most sacred dharmic call that you have. Are they fighting for it? The way that person fought for you to do this brand of coaching, they heard that you had a vision, a creative vision, and they could sniff that the world would be served better if you were aligned with that rather than doing some lawyer thing. Your partner should be always sniffing out for what you're doing that expands you and contracts you and try to push you away from the things that contract you and nudge you towards the things that expand you. That's, that's my job. I literally am watching every time Evan comes off a phone call or goes to a work meeting, I tell him, whatever you just did for the last hour, do more of that because the thing it did to you made you more alive, in love with your life, excited about being a creative contributor, uh, you need to hang out with that person more or do that job more. Your partner needs you to reflect back to you, um, to them, where they're wasting their magnificence and where they're honing it. I, I think, you know, of all couples in the world that really have this right, I don't know anyone who does it in, in a more powerful way than you two, teaching people how to go after their highest visions and their highest dreams, but in such a, an aligned way where it's really about creating value for all of humanity. You know, if he, he doesn't talk about creating wealth without talking about creating value for others. This isn't about an extraction. It's really about how to make the world a better place. He doesn't talk about opportunity and growth without talking about taking care of your body, taking care of your soul, taking care of your friendships, taking care of your family, taking care that if you do reach the success that when you finally get there, you've created a whole packaged life. Yeah, and what you were talking about is that he's speaking to all the different layers of reality. There's a congruence. Like if someone only talks about making wealth but never talks about health or family, you just feel like it's it's not holistic. And if they just talk about creating wealth from a of how you're going to take more from this world without really focusing on what you're putting into it, that for every dollar you charge, you need to be focused on creating 10 times the value. You know, so it's always whatever you take, you're, you have to be giving 10 times more than you take. Well, it's also very, it's, it's more practical, to be honest. It's not just moral or altruistic. If you want to be in a sustainable exchange where you're getting money in exchange for value, you have to be giving value. And if you give 10 times more value, there's no risk of the money. He literally believes that the universe and reality responds to value creation with wealth. That's what he believes is the law of physics. So the fastest way to make money is to align your skills with the best value you can offer the world. And then money will come. It's not, how do I make money? It's how do I make value that matches my superpowers? And then the money just emerges. Absolutely. It's definitely, as I do this, it's because of him. I mean, my, my question that I'm asking myself constantly is, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? How can I say this so that more people understand this? How do I put this out there so that, that more people can receive the message and take positive action? And I, I, it, Evan's the one who gave me that reframe and changed the whole way that I yeah, see it. The so. Moving the free line. The moving the free line is his little easy move. Moving the free line. Yeah. How much more can you give away to make the world a better place? And and create change from that place. So cool. Yeah. So what else are you guys going through? What's your next vision? What are you excited about? What can we see on the horizon? What's coming up? Yeah. I mean, we're doing a lot of note taking on our parenting and we're building a program around that. Um, we're working on a book on collaboration, which of course requires collaboration. So we have to work through continually work through our differences and issues just to 
produce ideas in the book. So it'll be a collaborative a magnum opus of collaboration once it's done. And let's see, I, I, we've been basically taking the last few years to build a really strong attachment for our daughter. So we've been traveling to a lot of countries and taking her with us with our Montessori teacher that travels and homeschools her. And so we've put the first like five years basically into parenting very intentionally. And I haven't been making, I mean, I'm doing client calls and doing work. He's written a book, but I think now we're ready to actually start being on the stage again and teach more. That's what we've been trying to calculate when our next, um, I guess, seminar or workshop might be. I don't have a specific time or date for you, but it's coming. Hopefully it'll be this year. And is there, where can people find you in the meantime? Where can they sign up? Where can, where's the best yeah. way for anyone who wants to? Yeah, well, um, I've got my website, AnnieLala.com, A-N-N-I-E-L-A-L-L-A.com. And there's a lot of free stuff on there. There's, there's videos of me and Evan fighting. There's me teaching different ideas. Um, there's a lot of blogs. Uh, um, feel free to sign up for uh, my newsletter. You'll get a, um, you'll get a, a chapter from the book that I wrote, a, a chapter in a book that I wrote that's basically the the love story of how I almost settled and sold out on love and how I actually ended up with Evan. So that's, and there's also a love test you can get. There's 10 questions, basically. You ask these 10 questions if you're a man or a woman, and it'll tell you whether you're in love with them or they're in love with you. That's awesome. Well, I definitely recommend everyone signing up and um, can be sure that whatever Annie and Evan put out, I will be there to, to consume and enjoy and grow from because you guys are geniuses. And I love you so much. Thank you for being here. Aw, thank you, sweetheart. And now I would love to hear from you. We covered a whole lot of things in this interview, but I'm curious. What of the many things we talked about was the most impactful for you? Head on over to the blog at womenwantingwomen.com and tell us not just why you found it insightful, but what action can you take right now to put it into practice in your life? What are you going to do? Either way, definitely head over to womenwantingwomen.com and sign up for my email list to become a Jordana Michelle Insider. When you do, you'll get instant access to an email training series I created to help you get started attracting the love you long for. Because I know that wherever she is, wherever the woman is that is going to be your one true person, the woman that you spend your life with and love until death do you part, she's missing you just as much as you miss her. If she's not already in your life, she is longing for you. It hurts her that you're not together and you owe it to her to start taking steps, whatever you can do to start finding each other. So sign up for my email list for all of that and also exclusive content and special giveaways and some personal updates from me that I just don't share anywhere else. And if you're interested in finding your soulmate so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share your dreams together and have adventures together and have amazing sex together and cozy time every night and every morning when you wake up, then there are tons of free resources for you on womenwantingwomen.com, including a guide to quickly and easily eliminating rejection from your life, a how-to guide for finding your lesbian soulmate, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a free matchmaking survey any lesbian or bisexual or queer-identified female can fill out so that I can keep you in mind while I'm meeting and working with the incredible women that I constantly connect with through the work that I do in our community. I'm always trying to set women up, and I might already know the perfect match for you. So go find my survey and tell me about yourself so that I can help. All of this is free on my website at womenwantingwomen.com. 
go check it out for yourself and share it with any other LGBT women that you think can benefit from what I'm offering there. Until next time, don't forget that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing and wherever she is right now, she is missing you just as much as you miss her. Thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you next time on Women Wanting Women.